you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it is super exciting to bring my latest guest to the show. Donna McGeorge is all about making work work. She is passionate about enhancing the large amount of time we spend at work, too much for many, let's be honest, to ensure it is as effective and productive as possible, but most of all, to ensure it is enjoyable. She's on a mission to make sure that the work we are doing now is bringing us joy, not just thinking about the future of work. And she's got a whole heap of experience to back it up, including, oh my gosh, I think she said 11 books, uh, working with companies such as Jetstar, Ford Motor Company, Nissan Motor Company, and experience of working uh, for organizations across Asia, uh, here in Australia, and overseas. Um, Some of the incredible insight and ideas that we talked about, um, we talked about this movement towards adaptive capacity. Uh, One of the things that has come out of uh, 2020 and COVID is a realization around the capacity that we all actually have and the ability that we all have as individuals, as executives, as team leaders, as managers, as organizations to actually be much more adaptive in that space. So we talk at length about the adaptive capacity opportunity that exists and how uh, this potentially gives us the opportunity to operate differently. Um, The challenge Donna sets us is I wonder what you would have to do to come up with 20%, to carve off 20% of your day to actually stop to think and to create. And she equally sets the challenge of trying to do uh, to identify um, when you actually do your best work. and as she says, you know, what impact do you have to, what things do you have to change to actually increase the impact of what you actually want? What I particularly loved about this conversations with, as I do with all of my guests, is really uncovering some of the backstory. Like, where did this all start? What were the moments, the, the, the real watershed moments that started triggering the change in how you work, what you do and what you end up being passionate about, how you actually uh, identified those moments where you were able to unleash your brilliance. And that all comes across in this awesome interview. So buckle in from wherever you're listening and uh, enjoy this latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance with the incredible Donna McGeorge. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm super excited about today's guest. Today's guest, the incredible Donna McGeorge, in all honesty, is a fabulous friend. Um, I'm so inspired by the work that she does and the impact that she is making and doubly inspired by her passion for what she does and this unending 
energy to actually drive change for the organizations and the clients that she works with. But as we know from this podcast, it wasn't always like that. There's always some background story as to why uh, individuals end up uh, doing what they're doing and how they find their own brilliance. So it's going to be absolutely awesome to chat with Donna. Welcome, jo- Donna. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Janine. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, let's just start with some quick fire questions just so our listeners can get a feel of who you are. Um, so where are you from? Well, I reckon that's the that's the kicker of a question just to start off with, right? So when I think about where I'm from, I typically think that I'm from Sydney because I was actually born in, in Sydney. I'm born in Ride Hospital. And what's interesting about that is um, my dad was born in Ride Hospital and my grandfather was born in Ride Hospital. So you could argue that I'm from Ride, but my dad was in the Navy. And so we moved around so much that it wasn't really until I got married and settled that I really kind of feel like I was from somewhere because it was so so much stuff but ultimately I'm from uh, born in Sydney Australia currently living in uh, Heathkit which is just outside of Melbourne Australia. Fabulous and you you live on some incredible land in Victoria just outside of Melbourne so for any of our international listeners right now um you pretty much live outside of the city, don't you? How many hectares are you on? Well, I, I don't actually know hectares, but I know acres. I'm on 20 acres. Acres, yeah, yeah, 20 yeah. acres. <laughs> and I love, I love the uh, the social photos that you put up. And, you you know, you are the archetypal Aussie sitting, having your cup of tea with kangaroos, uh, munching away uh, in the background on the land and it's just fabulous it's just fabulous to see those photos um, have you got have you named any of those kangaroos <laughs> uh, no but we have got a mob that lives here um, and you know if any of your listeners are from the United States I sometimes think um, some Americans sometimes think you know kangaroos just hop down the street in Australia well where I live they do uh, I'll frequently be driving from my property into the into town and I'll have to go slow because literally there is a kangaroo hopping along the road in front of me. Um, and until they veer off one way or another, I'm kind of stuck behind them. It's hilarious. <laughs> and a group of kangaroos is called a mob, just in case anyone listening is going, what is she talking about? Yeah. All right, Donna, your first job. Can you remember what your first job was? Well, I, it depends how far back we want to go. So at high school, very first job, very very yeah. first job ever. Yeah. Therefore, was uh, working at a large department store called um, in Sydney. It was called Grace Brothers, which has now become Maya. And I was working in the saucepan department. Um, and it was the first time in my life I ever had. Now I don't know anything about saucepans. I still to this day don't really cook. My hubby does all of that. But it was the first time in my life I was exposed to the expectation that I would have sales targets um and it was as a first job it was not a bad way to start around being really focused on our job was not just to stand around and look look good our job was to try and get people to buy saucepans so not a a bad start God, I can just imagine the uh, the benefit function selling of the various brands of saucepans at the time. I'm with you. Isn't a saucepan just a saucepan? <laughs> well, and you, you, you're right because we used to get training in, so the reps would obviously come in and train us as to why they're copper-based, you know, with a centimetre of copper at the bottom 
you know, you know, move the heat better for cooking. I'm really testing my memory now. Versus, you know, we had some that were cast iron. Why was cast iron better? It was very trendy back in the, I don't want to give my age away too much, but back in the 80s, cast iron cookware was really big. So I knew, I knew all the technical bits. So there you go. I love it. Brilliant. Now, final question, final quick fire. Are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? I am an absolute no discussion required tea drinker. Uh, I think it's because my my dad drank really rubbish coffee. Um, and again, Australians might know this brand, not necessarily um, people in the US, but it was called International Roast. And it's the worst coffee ever. And so my dad drank heaps of that. So it always stank and it was awful. And then, so I never drank anything to your coffee. And then I started dating. My first boyfriend um, was from England and got me onto tea and the rest is history, really. You've never looked back. Now, um, knowing you quite well, you've also got an alter ego in terms of the teacup chronicles, don't you? How many teacups do you actually own? Do you know? Well, yes, I do, actually. And the only reason I know that is uh, during the 2020 lockdowns, um, I set myself a challenge of using a different teacup every day. And I was um, uh, surprised myself uh, when we hit 87. Um, oh, my God. And, and, and then for Christmas, I got another 10 teacups for Christmas. So I can tell you without question, um, there's 97 teacups in my cupboard. Oh, do you know what you remind me of as you're sharing that? When I was growing up in the UK, my mom had an obsession with teapots and the house that I grew up in had one of those, uh, they call them, I think, dado rails in England. It's like the a little bit of a, a mini, mini, mini shelf that is slightly lower than the roof. And she would uh, display on that dado rail her teapot collection. And I can still remember to this day specific teapots. I can still remember the fear when she decided that she was going to go on a clean-up like all these teapots would come down, it'd be our job, along with the brasses that we used to have to polish up to clean these things. And recently, because um, she's now moved over to Australia, she pulled out a couple of these teapots and said, do you want these? I'm like, no, they bring back so many awful memories. Oh, that's hilarious. You know, yeah. we, um, I've got a cupboard. It's a standalone cupboard. And look, it's a, it's a little antique cupboard that my mum gave me. It's called a meat chest and it's, you know, originally, they were to to keep meat literally keep meat in in the cupboards in our in our hot climate long time ago um but it's it takes you know now I put all my teacups in there and my husband is too scared to go into it because I've got there's just not enough room so I've got them balanced precariously sitting one on top of the other and so he'll say what teacup do you want to use and I'll say oh you know I'll use the I'll use one of grandma's old teacups and he's like well you have to go in and get that because he's so afraid that he might pull a cup out and the whole lot will come crashing down. So it's all very precarious. Isn't it? And isn't it hilarious how there's certain things that take you back to being that child? So I'm curious, when you think about your child childhood Donna and, you know, starting off in Sydney and then moving to Melbourne and you talked a lot about uh, your dad as a, and as a family having to move around, how, how do you think your childhood has shaped either who you are right now or even the work that you're doing right now? Well, it's, it, 
of course it cannot not everything we do shapes who we are so with my dad being in the navy for a significant part of my um you know um years I went to nine schools in nine years um and sometimes that was because dad we'd moved to a particular uh, part of Australia and I started school there but because my dad would always go to sea uh then so that would sometimes leave my mum at home. Well, she had three kids, um, you know, all about four years apart in age. So it was like being a single mum. And so we'd get farmed off to various family members just to make life a bit easier for mum. And so in one year, I remember I started school in one location where we were at. And then I went and lived with my aunt in Echuca. Um, and in that, in that period of time I lived there, they moved house. So I went to Echuca East Primary School and then I went to Echuca South Primary School. And then because, um, you know, I'd only stay with my aunt for about three months, then I'd go and stay with my grandma and she lived in Dandenong. So I went to Dandenong Primary School. So just in one year alone, I went to four schools. Um, that wasn't so much of a problem when I was a lot younger. So in like primary school, for example, but once I hit high school, that that inconsistency started to become, wasn't a, a problem. I had to learn how to adapt. And I think, you know, to answer the question around how I am today, one of the things that I often get told or a superpower or whatever you want to call it is, I'm quick to adapt in the moment. I build relationships really quickly and easily. And at the front of the room when I'm delivering training or if I'm facilitating, I can get people on side really fast. And I do mm. think that's because constantly being the new girl at school I had to learn that really quickly at school otherwise you can you can you know be in strife or it can be a very unhappy experience. What sort of things did you learn then in in terms of those skills when you talk about getting people on side and uh yeah you you're you're an awesome facilitator what sort of what sort of things did you learn that you had to do? So all about connecting. Yeah, yeah. So smiling a lot. Um, in fact, yeah. I bumped into I bumped into someone who I who I knew at one of those schools randomly at a at a client space, and she went, "Did you used to be Donna Smith?" And I went, "Yes." And she goes, "Oh, I knew you at Nowra High School, and I always thought you were so funny and friendly." Um, and so, uh, so I had to learn to be funny and friendly pretty quickly because people respond well to that. Um, I also learned quickly to try and find a group or a tribe that I could be part of. And so I joined the volleyball team, even though I'm very short, played volleyball, joined gymnastics, did always did kind of dancing or jazz ballet or something like that. So I'd try and as quickly as possible get in, in with a group that we had some shared interests in. Now, as an adult, I look back at that and go, I was just, I learned really quickly how to build rapport and how to get myself settled into, quickly settled into some kind of um, group or tribe or, or bunch of relationships or friendships. Mm. So so you've got quite a significant life, life started with a, you working corporately. Mm. Um, tell us a little, about, a little bit about your, your corporate sort of season of your life what it is that you ended up doing and um, what you learned about yourself during that process so I don't know why I remember this particularly as a kid but I've always loved using computers typewriters I always loved typing and so Mm -hmm. after I uh, finished high school I, I pretty much just went and did a secretarial course to learn shorthand and typing um I failed miserably at shorthand because I could write longhand faster than I could remember the shorthand stuff so failed at that but the typing I just took to it like a duck to water so my first corporate jobs were kind of 
uh, secretary, you know, executive assistant, stuff like that. Um, and partly that's because I just, I know it sounds really bizarre. Gee, I loved typing. I really did. And, um, and I also liked um, technology. And so when I first started my career, it started on, um, and again, some of your listeners might remember this, but this again just shows my age, the old IBM golf ball typewriter, which was always my favourite uh, typewriter back then. But not long after that, word processing started. And so that was when I first started getting into computers and technology and and learning. So I, I, I was an early adopter with all of that. And my jobs enabled me to get into um, working with computers pretty quickly. And you then, how long were you, were you working corporately before you decided to actually start doing your own thing? So I, I'm going to have to do the maths on this. Um, this year is my 20th anniversary of being out on my own. So I wow. look back at around 2020, sorry, 2001 is kind of when I started going out on my own and I probably um, then would look back at that um, probably 15, 10 to 15 years that I might have been in corporate jobs um, mm. before I went out on my own, yeah. And is there any specific sort of watershed moments in your life that looking back now you go, yeah, that really changed my trajectory, that really changed uh, what I was doing at the time to set me on the path to becoming what I have become now. Absolutely. I remember um, I was working as a secretary for a sales sales leader and his team and he said, you know, if I keep getting in trouble because everyone's getting their expense claim forms wrong. So, you know, when they would submit them to finance, they were constantly being rejected and, you know, that has a knock-on effect around all sorts of stuff. And so he said, could you please run a short training session on how to complete these expense claim forms? And it was the first time I'd ever delivered a training on anything. Um, and I got to the front of the room and back then it was an overhead projector with a printed out on plastic version of the expense claim form and I just took people through how to do it. And there was a moment when I looked up and looked out and, and saw you know, my memory is probably a bit rose-coloured gla- rose glasses around this, an adoring audience looking back at me as the font of all wisdom about how to do this particular task. And I went, oh, this is it. This, is, this was almost like a oh, angel moment where I went, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so that set me on a journey to become an IT trainer and so I was a Microsoft trainer and I taught Word, Excel, PowerPoint, email, or, you know, all of those products is where I started. But then the second major watershed experience was when I was the a senior manager in a large accounting firm responsible for IT training across the whole of Australia. And I, as part of that, I got to go on a leadership development training course. And which was being facilitated by someone who I highly respect still, and he's been my mentor a bit, a guy called Colin James. Um, and when I saw him on stage, that was my next level up. That's like, oh, I'm going to stop doing computers now. Now I want to be at the front of the room making a broader difference in people's lives beyond just are they able to do a pivot table in Excel. What's really fascinating about your your journey are the constant almost reinventions or evolutions 
that you have chosen to take that those ah as you describe the moments of oh I want to do that I want to do that what what do you think because I reckon there's probably a lot of people listening that that likewise may have had those moments but but there's almost a difference between those people that listen to the ah moments and do something with it and those that just have those moments and decide that it's a little bit too scary and it's easy to say stay where they are what what do you think makes the difference it's really hard to say it could even go back to my nine schools in nine years piece where I was always starting something new having a you know having to pick up do do something different or or react to a different context and um and so I haven't maybe I just learned about what life is like out of your comfort zone earlier faster quicker who knows um but for me it it, it still happens Janine where I'll be sitting here and I'll have a thought and I'll go gee that's cool I wouldn't mind doing something like that and before I know it I've got a plan in place I've spoken to the right people I've had quotes for getting stuff printed and, and so I move quickly from idea to execution. And I suspect mm. part of it is is a bit of whatever the version of FOMO is, it's fear of losing the idea or fear of someone else doing it. So there could even be a bit of scarcity in that. Um, and so I, I respect the genius when it descends on me, you know, when, when you know, I get an idea, it's, it's the genius descends. I respect that. Um, and I would say... Um, uh, it's hard to know when I reject those because I suspect I have. I suspect I've had heaps of ideas that I then went, nah, I'm not going to do anything with those. Um, but I am really good at figuring out quickly, I think, what it would take and then that then um, is a decision point. So once I've figured out what would it take after I've had the idea, then it's like, will I do it or not? Um, it's hard to remember how many I've let go because I only remember the ones that I did. <laughs> But I, what I love is there's even a common thread through to how you've described that with what you're doing there. When you said I've somehow created this ability to figure out uh, very quickly where I need to focus and what I need to do. And the work that you're doing now is very much around helping so many people around the world um, unleash their own genius by being much more effective with where they place their focus can you you know what drive where where did this all come from when it when was the moment where you went oh my god this is actually what I need to teach people around the planet now what was it that was driving you there so I was delivering um a management development program for a a global um automotive manufacturing company and it was one of you know, and the content you know was all designed, and I and I had just to come in and and deliver their content, and the content was good, like great content, and and it just wasn't meeting what they needed. And at one point, I kind of, I, I shut the book and put it to one side, and I sat down and said, "What you, what what's really going on for you? What is it you really need?" And they just talked about how despite all the great ideas and thinking that was in the in the development program, they just struggle with little things. I'm not going to be able to think about giving great quality feedback until I get my email under control. Um, I'm in back-to-back meetings all day. I, I just have no strategy for how I communicate with my team and no plan. I'm running from one meeting to another. I feel like I get to the end of the day and I'm not getting anywhere. And so it was this big aha oh, moment for me where I went, you know, there's got to be some foundation here. I've got to figure out how to help them get some real basic fundamentals happening right in their life and solve that 
because until we do, they, they were kind of like what you might call hygiene problems and we couldn't get the, the next level of work happening with them in their development until we sorted these hygiene problems. Um, and that was it. And it's like, right, I'm all about helping people solve, you know, the now of work. A lot of people, I, I, I remember I had a coach once that said, oh, Donna, you should start talking about the future of work. And I'm like, no, I can't because it's the now of work that people still struggle with and it's those simple things. And so I've prided myself on writing books, delivering programs and, and coaching people around super practical application of just how do you fix day-to-day problems that have a massive impact on our productivity. I love that. And you can hear even through this microphone how passionate you are about that. Um, I just want to delve a bit deeper on that. Why? What are you seeing that is the biggest problem? Um, why Why does your work matter? What, what are, if I could get, you know, if I gave you a few seconds to rant right now around what you're so frustrated with continuously hearing, um, which is driving your work, what, what are you seeing? What are you noticing? Well, first of all, in a workspace, uh, if I'm ranting, I'm, uh, thank you, permission granted, I'm going to rant. Right? I'm, just, yeah. I'm sick to death of day-to-day, back-to-back, purposeless, wasteful meetings. And so that's one of the biggest things that I'll, I often get people complain, for want of a better word, or talk to me about, is that they never get time to do their real work or their important work because they're constantly spending back-to-back their time in back-to-back meetings and that has an interesting knock-on effect which is what I'm really um, on about which is that people shouldn't have to do their work at night so what people were saying to me was I'm in ridiculous back-to-back meetings all day and so then I have to do my email at night and respond to stuff and do my real work which meant if they had families or loved ones or whoever people hang out with you know after hours they were getting neglected. They were getting the second best of, of people. And so for me, this I'm really on a campaign to free people up so that they can be their best selves with their most important people. Because um, I don't need to remind you, Janine, at all, all your listeners of the research that says no one goes to their deathbed and says something like, gee, I'm glad I went to all those meetings and responded to every single email in my inbox. They always yeah, thank say, goodness I'm zero inbox. No, correct, seriously. Right? Now, whilst I'm a fan of Zero Inbox, like I'm a total fan of that, but what I what people say is, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I, you know, I, I, I remember one leader saying to me, you know, Donna, I need your help. Um, you know, my marriage is falling apart. My teenage kids are running amok. You know, but I'm a partner in a law firm, and that's going great. But you know, all this other stuff is just the stuff that's really important is just being so neglected because I've put too much energy into that. And so that's not to say, this. so I'm not a balanced work-life kind of person. I'm just more about how do we make the best use of your time so that you get to spend it where you get the greatest return. Um, so that's, mm. in a nutshell, that would be my rant. <laughs> no, I love it. And and your, your rant has got almost even stronger since the, what everyone experienced in 2020 with COVID. We were talking... Uh, earlier about what you're seeing that's happening um, as people are starting to work through that and out of the other side and this added dimension that it's having on the now of work. Can you just share, you know, those, um, the, the stuff that you're currently writing about and researching? Yeah, so currently I'm looking at capacity 
um, and what does capacity mean for people? And so kind of the, the, the preamble around that based on what I observed in 2020 and what people were telling me was that um, some people just, you know, ended up doing longer days, longer hours, and it just spread and, and bled more into their personal time. And that got me really thinking about what is the, you know, what's the optimal amount of time we should be spending at work and what is, you know, what are we missing out on? And so there was aspects of that, but also around the people that were able to adapt and change and take advantage of 2020 were the ones that come out of it. And, and when you have conversations with them now, they look back and go, so many silver linings, 2020 wasn't as bad as I thought. I was able to make a difference in so many ways because they had what I what I shouldn't say me, what I refer to, but what I'll talk about as adaptive capacity. And so because they weren't completely full and flat out and, and all of that, they actually had some space to think about how could I operate differently. And this was not just at an individual level and leaders level, but also organisationally. What were the organisations that had sufficient capacity in their systems that they could adapt quicker, better, stronger, and are now coming out the other side of this. And so the, what I'm researching has applications, not just at an organisational level, but I'm, more, I'm always more interested in how do I help a, a manager sitting in an organisation really be able to use adaptive capacity to make their life and their team's life better. Um, so, yeah, yeah that, that's what, kind of what I'm researching now. Oh, gosh. And I, what you talk to, I'm sure I'm not the only one here nodding, you know, having spent, um, you know, about 20 years working corporately and then subsequently building and selling a business and now uh, reinventing and doing other stuff. You know, one of the things that, that has been consistent throughout my corporate career or my professional life has absolutely been, I was talking to somebody on an, recently on on this podcast about this concept of it's almost like we the the working hard and what that actually means and this need to reshape it and I know there's loads of commentary about working smarter but it's so much more than that and what you're talking to is is almost this ownership piece around how do we better manage uh, this now of work such that we can become better individuals so that we can unleash our own brilliance and as I said I'm sure there are many people listening to this that are going help me oh my gosh yes I'm overwhelmed with to-do lists I'm overwhelmed with emails I'm overwhelmed with a diary that is constantly packed and meetings and I don't have time to do work let alone keep fit and healthy and eat properly and hug my kids at night um so I know that they're going they're asking me to ask you what what sort of tips what sort of insights if you know if you were to never meet some of the people that are listening to this podcast what would you love to leave them with as something to start thinking about when it comes to um, getting better at managing the now of work? You know, as you were talking, I was thinking it, it's nearly impossible to unleash your brilliance if you've barely got time to think, you know. Yeah. So how can I be brilliant if I'm swamped all day in the busyness of life? And so um, I would, the biggest tip I would say, and this is, you know, a lot of people will probably go, you know, you're dreaming. There's no possible way for me to do that. But I'd love you to figure out how you could try and carve 20% of your day, your life, whatever, your week, however, to just stop, pause and think. Because we tend to operate so much out of, you know, what we could call a life by default. We just, we're just reactive, we just go with the next thing, we never stop and think. 
um, I would love you to take some time to just, you know, if, if you think about a day, there's, again, you're probably dreaming, but let's say an eight-hour work day. What would happen if you blocked two hours out every day that gave you time to just stop and take stock of where you're at, to really think about what's important and did you get the important stuff done, to be able to think about what is it I need to get done, do, focus on for the next couple of days or next week or whatever, and just take the time and space to think um, because I believe that's where your brilliance sits um, and that's really what adaptive capacity is. Adaptive capacity is do you have space in the system to be able to take advantage of opportunities? And when you're flat out, back to back, and you can't put your head up from your work, you don't see the opportunities, uh, let alone be able to take advantage of them. And so the, the thing you need to start thinking about, any of you who are going, I could never do that, my life is too busy, I say, well, that's your challenge. You know, mm. you, you're the boss of you. You get to say in an eight-hour workday, I'm happy to accept meetings for six hours of those days, but for two hours, they're mine. And, it, and, you know, I did write a book called The First Two Hours. I typically encourage people to protect the first two hours of the day, but I'm not going to get that, you know, prescriptive with you. But I'm going to say take, take some time to protect two hours um, to give yourself some, some space to be brilliant and to, and to think about what it would take to, you know, whether or not you're writing books or whatever. But as a manager, imagine if you had two hours to really think about how's your team going? How are the individuals, how, how might I unlock some brilliance in my team members? But when you're just going from one meeting to another and just on this kind of treadmill of stuff, you never get the time to stop and think. And the only time you do, sorry, I'm a bit of a rant again, um, is someone comes to you and says, I'm leaving. And then you go, gee, I wish I'd stopped and had a conversation with this team member to recognise that they were a flight risk long before. And that's what you've used that time for. So my biggest tip is you've got to protect some time to think. And to, and to give yourself some space to look up and look out. And some people might now be going, oh, my God, I can't find a two-hour block. But that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is find the 20%. So potentially you could go 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at lunchtime, 30 minutes at the end of a work day, 30 minutes before I go to bed is, is what I'm thinking you could do. What 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 are the, you know, quick and dirty uh, tips that you share have you seen work that have now become people's habits yeah so um things like how do you you know recognizing that you should pay attention to the body in your clock rather than the bottom than the so the clock in your body rather than the clock on the wall and so too often we and, and this is industrial industrial revolution stuff that we're still part of is that a start time is nine o'clock and a finish time say is five o'clock and and we organize our world according to that whereas not all of us operate that way some of us are better in the mornings or better in the evenings and so when we start to get a sense and this is what 2020s enabled us to do that we have a bit more flexibility around paying attention to when do I do my best work and so um, I've had lots of people reach out to me after reading the book the first two hours and say when I started carving my work up according to a very simple structure and do my most important stuff in my best two hours or to your point Janine it could be I don't really I call it two hours but it could be 30 minutes 40 minutes 10 minutes yeah. whatever you need it to be but when I recognize I, I can do my best work then and I protect it I then allow myself to have meetings at this period of the day and then I do some of the more routine things at another period of the day. And then I do my wrap up and prep for the next day at another period of, day, period of the day. And when people start to be a bit more conscious 
of how they're using their time. I get a lot of people telling me they're make, getting great results. So the simple tip is how far ahead into your calendar do you have to go before you can begin to protect a chunk of time in whatever that space is that is your I get to think and get to do my most important stuff and then you can be reactive if you need to in the rest of it. But I think I think from a mindset perspective, I just think people have become not learned helplessness, but kind of just learned reactiveness or learned default actionness. And it's like, stop! You're the boss of you. You're the boss of your calendar. You're the boss of your life. You get to decide where you spend your time. So make some conscious choices about how you're spending it to get the best return on that. So I'm curious, what are what are some of your daily habits mm-hmm. that? Um, I'd love to hear what they are. And I'd also like to hear, you know, because we all set habits and we all break those habits and often it's becoming aware of the impact of breaking it to understand why it's so important that you keep those barriers. So have you got some examples you can share about your daily habits and equally an example of when you let it go and what the result of that was and through that how it became a learning of actually for me, Donna, this is a really critical part of how I operate. Yes, so I, I, I do what I teach and what I write about. And so I do protect the first two hours of my day. I'm a morning person. I'm really good from about 9 till 11. I like to keep that time focused for, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm writing a book or if I'm preparing a presentation or if I'm, um, you know, designing a, a session or whatever. But the time when I have the, when I need my brain to be on, so I refer to that as intensity. So it requires a bit of intensity and a bit of brain energy, and it's probably going to use up a fair bit of glucose in the system. Um, and so I want to be conscious that I, I, whatever I've got in my physiology, that I might take the best advantage of that. So I always, the first two hours, it's an absolute. Now, to, you, to your point, any time I don't do that, it's like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll run late on something or something won't be as good as I would have liked it to be, or I end up not that I do this very often, but I'll end up kind of having to wing something and it never goes as well as I would have liked because I do rely quite heavily on that. Um, I, you know, back to the kind of zero inbox thing, um, I pride myself on having a pretty low um, count in my inbox. So one of the things I focus on is keeping that as low as possible and processing emails as and when they come in, but not as in immediately they come in. I set, usually I do my email sometime after lunch. Um, and but I try to get it all done in that in that two hour period after lunch so that it's clear and clean. So they're probably my two biggest. And when I it's it's when I let things slip, you know, like um, I'll accept a meeting that I shouldn't have, and I think ah, that's put my it puts just puts me out of whack and puts me behind for the day. Or um, I'll succumb, and we're all human. I'll succumb to opening my email first thing and all of a sudden my email now drives what I end up doing in the day rather than what I'd planned to do in the day. Um, and so, I'd, you know, for your listeners, I'd be saying that the longer you can put off looking at your email in the morning, the way more productive you're going to be in that crucial uh, two hours or that you've set aside. So this work that you do now, Donna, you've written... Oh my gosh, how many books? I've lost oh, I think track. I'm up to 10, but who's counting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've written lots and lots of books uh, that are, you know, available internationally. You travel the world, you've done a lot of work 
uh, in Asia, working with teams and individuals and leaders. Um, is there a moment when you look back and you go, you know, I'm really in my zone now. I'm really in my zone of genius or I'm, I feel like I'm in the flow of doing what I should be doing. And what have you learned about yourself during that process? Um, it turns out I like structure and order, which is probably no uh, secret given my Navy dad background and, you know, just stuff that you heard earlier in this um, episode. But I remember I was in Korea and I was teaching a group of managers about how to run meetings better. So it was off the back of the release of the 25-minute meeting. And um, typically often people find, and this, this is not always my experience, but often uh, Asian audiences are sometimes described as um, uh, sometimes a bit harder to read or they're a little bit quiet or whatever. I don't, I don't want to, you know, put too much into that. But this group, was they were on fire. Um, and I think maybe because I was on fire, I was really seeing that they had lots of big problems about their meetings for lots of good, you know, legit reasons. But by the end of that session, there was just this massive relief feel around they could see light at the end of the tunnel around how they could move forward just with meetings. And so if I was to generalise that, it's like any time I'm at the front of the room and I see people's shoulders just drop with relief as whatever the weight is that's holding them down and preventing them from being their best self just gets released. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, how about you just structure your meetings this way and you'd be a bit more thoughtful about how you do that or maybe structure your day a bit differently. But it's those, they're those moments where you just go, ah, it's those little things that just done consistently well over time just make a huge difference. Mm. In the, um, during your career and, you know, all these, these evolutions of Donna, um, is there a piece of advice that someone gave you that in hindsight you go, oh, please don't ever listen to that advice. It's, it's just the wrong advice. So have you got an example of wrong advice that we hear a lot, uh, particularly as business owners, entrepreneurs, leaders, et cetera, that you go, that's rubbish. It's the worst advice ever. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, I think the biggest one is, is how are you going to build passive income so you can just sit on a beach in Mexico and make money doing nothing? Um, shouldn't you be thinking about doing that? You know, running your own practice where you're the primary breadwinner, that's just irresponsible and dangerous and blah, blah, blah. And for me, it's just like, shut up. I'm, I'm my world's best asset. Um, and, and I actually don't believe it's ever possible just to sit on a beach in Mexico and do nothing to make money. Um, and so for me, um, I've just ignored uh, that advice completely. Um, I'm quite happy being a principal in a practice um, and getting to play with my thinking, my IP, sharing it with the world. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really good with that. Who's been the biggest influence in your life, do you think? That's such a great question because I am... Um, I've had several great teachers, so I'm afraid I'm not going to directly answer that question. So um, I've had a I had a great teacher early when I first started running my own practice, a guy called Roger Dina, who's um, the late Roger Dina, he passed away several years ago, and he had a profound impact on me about just getting me to see the world differently. Great guy. Um, and then Colin, who I talked to you about, who was the reason I'm here today, is because Colin... James was a facilitator for a leadership program and I remember very specifically, this has had a massive impact on me, that I was saying to him, I want to be like you, 
Um, I'm going to quit my job for six months and can I follow you around and carry your bags and be your apprentice free? You don't have to pay me or anything. And he said, oh, no, I don't do that. And I said to him, well, how will I ever get to be as good as you? And he said, well, why would you limit yourself to that? And that's really, for me, it's made me choose just to think about who do I pay attention to, who my mentors are. And it's never about because I want to be them and be like them. It's around what can I learn from them that I integrate into myself to become my best self, right, in whatever that might be. And so I would say Roger Diener, I'd say Colin James. I would say Matt Church is uh, another, he's quite known in Australia, very, um, he's impacted me in lots of very ways, mostly in very challenging ways. He's always challenged my position and where I'm at and my thinking and that's always useful. Um, And if I was to just tap into your IP a little bit, um, Janine, around it's who you know and the network that you build around you. Um, I've always tried to find people that 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 will rattle my cage a little bit um, in, in helping me be able to take the next steps forward. And what I love about what you've just shared to sort of chunk it up for people listening is that actually without realising it, there are teachers all around us, you know, at any single moment in our lives There are people, if we could only open our eyes and our ears to notice it, there are people that without realizing it are inspiring us, are pushing us to do more, are sharing insight, are essentially those little droplets of of wisdom and possibility that only if you grab it, do you do something with. And um, what you've just shared there is that importance around what you can learn from others. And equally, I love Colin's uh, James's feedback of why would you want to be like me? You know, don't limit yourself to that because so many of us conform. So many of us um, look up to someone we want to be like them, but it's not how do you become you? And maybe the conforming bit is part of the challenge of how people are working, right? Is is Do you reckon that's going to be almost the next shift in how we work and how we uh, do live and lead our lives in the fact that for so long we have been conforming to what work should look like. But I wonder if that's part of what's going to be challenged as a result of coming out of 2020 and starting to reshape work. What's your view on that? Oh, I completely agree. And even though I'm more about the now of work than the future of work, I just think what 2020 has done is 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 given us, it's, it's rattled our cages, right? It's, it's said we, we've had a shake-up and and it's challenged all the things we thought were possible. Even, even in some of the work I do, if someone had said to me in February 2020, Donna, can you do this program for us remotely? I probably would have said, no way. I don't think I can get the results. Well, as it turns out, absolutely I can do it remotely. And I'm in some cases had even better results. And so I think what's being challenged is I think it's the promise that we thought you know, remote teams and global teams would have given us 15 years ago. So the notion that, um, you know, for develop, I remember when I was working a little bit with some IT teams and they would say, you know, what we try to do is have, we've got some developers here in Australia and we hand our work over to people in Europe and then they hand the work over to people in America and so we get advantage of 24-hour development. And, I'm, and I think other people tried to apply that. We were never just quite able to do it. What it usually resulted in was people who were on the team in Australia pulled a double shift. Um, and so I think what we're seeing now as a result of 2020 is, 
instead of going it's not possible people have, have shifted their thinking to what would it take to make it possible what would we have to shift and and I think the most glorious thing I've seen with many of my corporate clients is the absolute dismantling of bureaucracy all the permissions we thought we needed to make significant changes to how we work just disappeared when we had to move fast and react and respond to the speed at which things happened at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so I would love it if nothing ever went back, that we were had a more, you know, less bureaucracy, lots more flexibility and lots more how could we make it happen rather than, you know, no, that would never work, which I think I'm already seeing. It's great. Donna, there is so much um awesome wisdom and insight that you have shared today um you know everything from that conversation around the opportunity that exists with adaptive capacity and how actually that is giving us permission to make decisions around how we individually choose to operate differently uh your challenge to the audience around how could you come up with 20 percent of your day to stop and think and create which I think is an awesome challenge to put out there um, and it'd be interesting I'd love to hear if any listeners uh, work out how to do it for themselves please messages um, and and link to that that importance of working out when you do the best work um, again it comes back to ownership and then wrapping it back into the ownership piece um, which again flows on from the learning that Colin gave you is, you know, what impact do you want to make? What's limiting you in terms of now to, to create that impact you want to make? And so to wrap this up, um, this podcast is all about uh, helping other people unleash their brilliance by hearing stories from other people about how they've unleashed theirs. What does unleashing brilliance mean to you, Donna? It's, I think it's around potential and, and tapping into your latent potential that may not have been able to see the light of day. You know, um, Janine, you and I often have conversations around how some people are the world's best kept secret. And I think certainly for me, unleashing brilliance is around how do you, how do you stop being the world's best kept secret? How do people know about your brilliance and your genius and, and what you have to offer? Donna, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. How can people find you if they've got any questions, comments, um, if they want to get in touch with you? So the, you know, the usual places. Uh, someone said to me once that I was a shameless self-promoter on social media. And I think they were insulting me, but I thought it was a compliment. Um, so you'll get me on all the socials. I'm Donna McGeorge across everything. So places like LinkedIn or Facebook or um, Insta, for example. Um, and my website, DonnaMcGeorge.com. Um, and if anyone was wanting to grab any of my books, they're in all, all the usual places uh, you can grab my books. Donna, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.